Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. So today's, I think, going to be more of a simple Q&A session, but maybe I'll say a few words about Dhamma practice. So this morning's study group, we were studying the Salayaka Sutta. To the people of Sala. And it the Buddha brings up mentions the word Dhammacharya, which means Dhamma practice. And the sutta is actually quite removed from meditation practice, what we normally think of as Dhamma practice. I guess by normally I mean in, in our community because there's so much of an emphasis on meditation. But it does remind us that Dhamma practice isn't simply the practice of meditation, that there are many more aspects to uh, a full, well-rounded Dhamma practice. And moreover, that many people are ready for deep teachings on m mindfulness meditation practice that for people not familiar with Buddhism it's important to include teachings on things like morality and ethics and simply on how to live your life in a way that is beneficial, wholesome and according to the Dhamma, according to the truth and goodness. So we had a little bit of a discussion this morning about the word Dhamma. And the idea of the Dhamma being, it's often translated as goodness or righteousness. But in fact, it it means something more like truth or reality. And so when we think of Dhamma or Dhamma practice, Dharma, it's, it's, it's actually one step further than simply goodness or righteousness. Because of the the meaning of the word, the the significance of the use of the word dhamma reminds us that we don't do things simply because they're good by some personal or communal understanding of what good means, what is good, what is the meaning of good or righteous. We do it because it's actually a part of reality. It's the truth. If you were, are to engage in practices that go against the Dhamma, it, that literally means that you're going against reality. For example, if you harm others, we harm others with the intention of helping ourselves, with the, with the perception of it being somehow beneficial for us to harm others which goes against reality, of course. It's not beneficial to us to purposefully harm others. 
So the, the belief that something unwholesome is somehow to our benefit. These practices go against reality because they're they're inconsistent. They're perverse in a very technical sense. Not perverse because some religion deems it so, but perverse in the sense that they make no sense. It makes no sense to do these things. It, it isn't useful, beneficial, it's harmful. Someone who does something that is harmful to themselves is absurd. It's going against reality. We have the intention for good re good results, yet we do things that bring bad results. That's the whole idea behind Dhamma. The Buddha didn't talk too much about practice outside of meditation and the the qualities the the uh, practices that support meditation one notable exception is uh, ethics and morality he did talk about not transgressing certain moral principles but they tend to be pretty simple and obvious and often don't help us deal with specific life issues like relationships. We have one good sutta in the whole of the Buddha's teaching. There's other teachings, but one that's really useful and therefore often cited for its focus on relationships, its focus on worldly affairs as a sort of a dhamma practice how to treat other people this it's called the sigalovada sutta it talks about the sorts of friends that are real friends and the sorts of friends that are not real friends it talks about ways of the four abhayamukha ways of uh, heading towards ruin gambling drugs and alcohol going out at night talks about our our relationships with others. The main portion of the sutta is on how we should treat our parents, how we should treat our children, our, our spouses, our friends, our employees, how we should treat religious people, wise spiritual leaders, and so on. But I guess all I wanted to say is that that portion of our lives is, is a part of our Dhamma practice. It's not, it doesn't end when we get off the meditation mat, of course. But one important thing to keep in mind, we should always keep in mind, even while engaged in more worldly pursuits, is that all of our activities, 
while sitting in formal meditation or outside of formal meditation are governed by the same foundational laws and realities. They're made up of the same building blocks, which are experiences, physical and mental phenomena that arise in our perception. So even when we are engaging in a conversation with another person, the whole time we're in a conversation with something, all of our mental and physical phenomena are still presenting themselves and composing themselves into the manifestation of a conversation. Our emotions, how we how we, we receive the words of others positively, negatively, fear, worry, anger, greed, mindfulness, unmindfulness, delusion, conceit, manipulation. All of these important realities are constantly occurring and building themselves into habits that then govern how we live our lives. So one positive consequence of this is our ability to find answers to a lot of life's problems ourselves. Now, the Buddha's emphasis on these building blocks, on experiential reality, is because ultimately every experience we have, whether it be a complicated social interaction or whether it be a, an observation of the stomach rising and falling in, in your room, they're all governed by the same rules. And they're all subject to, or they're all made up of experience. They're all made up of moments that are amenable to the practice of mindfulness, meaning through the practice of mindfulness, the application of meditation, mindfulness techniques during our daily life, we can have the presence of mind to perceive a situation in a, in a, a beneficial, a holistic, a useful, proper manner that allows us to see right and see wrong and, and discern right from wrong for ourselves without having to rely on any teachings. So my questions about specific instances in life are challenging to answer and challenging in in a way that is different from from you know a challenging meditation question because they are complex and require a lot of information that, and no one has but you yourself. When I'm in this situation, what should I do? Only you can know because only you are privy to these states of mind that are going along with it. And so often we'll try to break down these situations and ask about your emotions, ask about your perceptions, ask about your experiences, ask about the things that might be triggering, that might be causing problems. The, the, the things that you're concerned might happen and how you might deal with them and so on. So yes, our Dhamma practice is outside of meditation as well, but that doesn't mean that 
it isn't best served by the same principles as our meditation practice. Mindfulness is still ever useful. Sabatikang, the Buddha said. Sabatikang. Always meaningful, always useful, always purposeful. So that's all I have to say about that. Let's go on to questions and answers then. Sorry, just give me a second here. I'm going to try to see if I can do something here about this noise. All right, I'm back. I don't know if that's any better, but just go. I think it's okay. All right. Let's begin with the first question. Should I always return to touch point one after having noted something else? Or can I go back to where I left off in the cycle before something came up? No, you can continue on where you left off. You don't need to start over. Just make sure you're starting from the rising. Will a Christian gain benefit from meditation in terms of lessening suffering, or is it pointless for a person who is dedicated to certain views, such as there being a God? Now, the thing about such views is they tend to fade away as you cultivate mindfulness. Uh, you know, views in Buddhism are, are really much more foundational, much more related to our perception of experience. You can circumvent a lot of the intellectual views. Um, 
You know, the view of God is so far removed from experience, which of course Christians probably are not happy to hear, or theists in general, but it's so far removed from actual experience that what we get in the problem is where someone sees God in their experience, right? It's I don't know how common that would be, but in my experience is you don't have to concern yourself with that. That being said, I mean, they're going to be they're going to be faced with a decision. You know, eventually they have to make a choice. They'll have to figure it out. Are they going to focus on experience, or are they going to rely on God? One big problem with a lot of theists relates more to their views on uh, freedom from suffering. Their views on the goal. So, for people who believe that the only thing that matters is your faith in, in a certain deity or a certain historical figure or whatever, uh, it, it's hard for them to put out the, the effort required to really straighten out the mind. They're not concerned with their foibles, their... Uh, problems, their defilements, right? Because we're considered to be flawed and that's okay because as long as God forgives us, that sort of thing, you know? This whole idea in, in Christianity, for example, that God died for our sins can mean to some extent for some people that it's okay to be sinful as long as you believe in Christ. There are, there are actually Buddhist sects that have this same sort of idea that aren't, aren't Buddhist in my estimation, but they call themselves Buddhist. But they still believe that faith is the only way and that a sinner is more likely to go to the, the pure land than a saint. And because the saint is focused more on their own practice, the sinner um, can put all of their faith in in Amitabha, this this bodhisattva, because they know that they don't have any goodness in themselves. Very strange views. But okay, simple answer, yes, they'll gain benefit. And I think that's really the simple thing, is not to worry too much about it. Why? Because you can't, you know, changing people's views is not really, not, not an, an external thing. Someone has to change them as a radical shift of their own perception. And so it's not useless. Give them some practice, and what they get out of it is what they get out of it. If they eventually decide to change, it's not it's not your duty to change people, to, to convert people, right? We're not about proselytization or conversion. People decide to convert. One interesting thing the Buddha said is, it's okay to keep your old teachers and your old culture and so on. He said, I don't, we're not asking you to become Buddhist. All we say is that if you practice this way, you will become free from suffering. What is a good way to start with meditation? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. We have a meditation booklet on our website. 
And we have an at-home meditation course that you can sign up for. This is all free. And this is how we recommend people to start getting into meditation. Go check that out. See what you think. There are links in the description, I think. My understanding is that rising and falling should connect, but we can note other things between sitting and touching, and before the next rising and falling. Is that correct, or should all connect? No, none of them connect in the way you're thinking of it, I think. If, if, if something interrupts your, your observation of the main object, you note that, and once you've done noting that, you start over from the beginning of the sequence, start over from rising. Now you can continue on from a specific touching point, but you'd still start from rising each time. If you, go, if you note anything, start over from the next rising when you come back. I am finding it really hard to meditate over 15 to 20 minutes in one sitting. Do you have advice on how I could increase the time? Well, increasing time should go hand in hand with increasing the frequency. It's a good rule of thumb is that there should be some relationship between the number of of practices you do in a day and how long each practice is. So you shouldn't really do one long meditation practice. If you're having trouble doing more than that, I mean, first of all, you you may not be doing walking first, in which case you're not really following our advice, and you'd find it a lot easier if you did walking first and then sitting. And second of all, if it's, if you're having trouble, you should be increasing the number of times you do. So if you're practicing once a day, try practicing twice a day, and then you should find that each session, the amount of time can be increased at least a little bit. But I wouldn't worry too much about doing just 15, 20 minutes of sitting. That's a great start. Eventually you want to get up to something like 30 minutes walking and 30 minutes sitting. Since I've been meditating, a lot of negative stuff from the past comes up and I feel guilty. How do I deal with this? Well, if you've, I, I assume you may have read our booklet. If you haven't, you might want to read that and you could take up our at-home course to get a better foundation in the practice. But there's no mystery in this. Um, first of all, stuff isn't negative. That's an important point to realize. The stuff that comes up is just stuff. The reason it's coming up is because you have negative reactions to it. And so it gains a power. There's a there's a, a physical power even that keeps it in the brain. You know, it, it scars the brain and the brain, not scars, but it impacts the brain and the brain trigger, triggers, fires off this reminder that the mind picks up. You know, there's a charge there. That's how I assume it works. Though I'm not a brain expert. Um... And so the practice, a big part of the practice is the separation, the ability to separate all of that. The stuff is just thoughts or images or whatever. You say thinking or seeing or if you hear something someone said to you, hearing. And then separate from the reactions, the liking, the disliking, the worry, the fear, 
anxiety, whatever. And guilt, if you feel guilty, you note that as well. We're not trying to stop this from happening. We're not trying to stop past things from coming up. That's a very important point. We're trying to see it more clearly and, and change the way we react to it. What should one do when at first pursuit in worldly things has been nearly completely abandoned, but later the will to meditate further starts to decline too? Well, you can address the will to meditate, the lack of will to meditate. The, the thing about meditation is it's a little more like the default. Why wouldn't you sit quietly? Why wouldn't you be okay with just walking back and forth? If you don't have the will to meditate, well, then you have to be doing something else instead, and most likely it's something that has a emotional charge to it. You want to do it, or something's bothering you, so you're worried about it, that sort of thing. Another thing is being in contact with people who are meditating having a community, being associated with good people. It's an important part of spiritual life. I have a question about legality and morality. What if you break a law, but the law is morally wrong? Which do you follow as the right thing? You follow morality first and foremost. Um, so if a law requires you to do something that is immoral, you don't do it. And that's an unfortunate reality to be in, but yeah, absolutely, you, you keep the precepts even even to the, the point that it kills you. If you want to, you know, if you're a serious practitioner, that's what you do. Now in practice, I think a lot of people are unable to follow that, but really is, if you want to even be a lay Buddhist, that's the criteria. Five precepts to the death. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, if the consequence of keeping the, the precepts is, is prison, for example, or a fine or whatever, well, ultimately prison because you probably wouldn't be able to pay fines infinitely, but uh, so be it, you know. Prison's not so bad. It's just more experience. I mean, it is pretty bad, but still just experience. Would using martial arts in meditation practice be good or bad? Well, I don't know about using them in meditation practice. I'm not quite sure what your idea is here, but... Our meditation practice is meditation practice. If the question were, can you be mindful while performing martial arts, the answer is yes. And I think that's maybe a better way to perceive this. If you're a person who does martial arts, well, just try and do them mindfully. Try and apply the meditative principles to martial arts. But don't use it to replace your formal practice. One thing I say just about that last question about um, about laws and, and morality is that you you often find remarkable 
results from practicing the Dhamma. It goes back to what I to the the topic of today's the to, uh, talk. Um, so it often seems like you need to break the precepts, or something bad is going to happen. And then, in fact, when you keep the precepts purely with a pure intention, with a good intention, it's sometimes quite remarkable how the Dhamma protects the one who practices. The Buddha said, Dhammo hove rakati dhammachari. The Dhamma indeed protects one who practices the Dhamma. How does one let go of attachment to the body and attraction to others? So letting go isn't a practice. We practice seeing clearly. When you see clearly, there's no, there's no inclination to cling. Attachment requires delusion, it requires ignorance, it requires a cloudiness and imprecision in the mind a lack of clarity. So our practice is simply to see clearly, and the results are things like letting go of attachment. If you're interested, if you haven't read our booklet, consider reading the booklet, and if you want to take up the at-home course, it's a good introduction in how to practice in such a way that allows you to see clearly. I've been meditating for a while, and noting during meditation with the five hindrances being absent is no problem for me. What's the next step to do? Just going on with noting? What's your advice? I don't know if you've taken our at-home course, but that would be my advice. If you've taken that, I'd consider doing a, an intensive course if you're able to find a way. But if you're just going by what I teach on YouTube or what's in the booklet, it's really just the foundational teachings or what you've read in other books. We don't give everything away in the booklet. Um, you know, we try and lead people through things and give them advanced exercises and so on. Is there a way to do walking meditation faster? I want to practice as I walk where I need to go. I find it hard to do so without going slowly, and the people of New York City will kill me if I don't speed up. You can practice mindfulness at any walking speed. It's just not considered mind, uh, not considered formal meditation, walking meditation. So when you do formal walking meditation, you shouldn't do it on the streets, unless you have, well, we did it in a park in New York City once, and the subway as well. But uh, you know, we blocked off a little area for ourselves. If um, when you're walking to work or or whatever, you know, take that as a practice. Say to yourself, walking, walking, or right, left, or go at any speed. Just don't confuse that with actual formal walking meditation. It's not the same thing. Do Buddhists talk about miracles? 
If so, how does one cure an incurable disease like keratoconus? Buddhists talk about them, but we don't teach how to cure incurable diseases, for example. So, two very different things. I can answer the first question. I cannot answer the second question. I'm thinking of coming to Canada. Do you have a retreat center in order to practice meditation? Yes, we do. But I think our borders are still closed. So you have to wait for the for the announcement. And, and I'm moving soon to a monastery where I used to live. And I'm not sure how much room they will have. So we'll try our best to accommodate meditators, but I can't guarantee anything. I have to move there first and sort of settle in and get some some uh, some leverage i guess once i have once i'm an established member of that community i can start to carve a little section for the meditators out the opening of the tamma eye tamma chaku is superior to the divine eye dipa chaku below the wisdom eye what is the divine eye? The divine eye is clairvoyance, ability to see things far away. Is having fear of the concept of Nibbana a problem, or is it okay to just note the fear and move on? Yes, just note the fear and move on. Nibbana as a concept is just a boogeyman like same as like insight and wisdom they're just concepts that we turn into things Nibbana is really just the the perfection of what you're already doing and that is letting go and freeing yourself from suffering doesn't mean anything really And so again, focusing on results is always problematic. Just focus on your the cause. Focus on clarity of mind. It's like suppose you're a, a miner, a diamond miner. You can't you can't judge your technique in mining by how much how many diamonds you you unearth. So you say, "Oh, I must be doing something wrong. I haven't found any new diamonds, right?" It's not at all like that. You can't guarantee that you're going to find this many diamonds or that many diamonds, but you know your technique is sound. And so you just do that and you don't re you don't refer to the actual results because it's unpredictable, but you know you're digging in the right place and you're digging in the right way. And you're going to find diamonds if they're there. You're going to find all the diamonds that are there. Results are like that. We we, we get concerned when the certain results don't live up to our expectation, or you know they're mixed with experiences that are contrary to what we'd expect because of how complicated it all is. You just go by your technique, you do your work, and 
not you wouldn't say you hope for the best because it's better than diamond mining it's like diamond mining when you know they're to be found you just don't know where exactly they are what they're going to be like but you'll find them Can you please explain the importance of Sankara in practice? Of the five clinging aggregates, the other four are easier to understand or watch directly. How does one meditate on Sankaras? So this is why the this is one of the reasons I think why the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a better way of explaining the five aggregates as a meditation technique. So we don't use the five aggregates as our object, we use the four foundations of mindfulness. But Four foundations of mindfulness really are the five aggregates. They aren't outside, and they're sort of a good way of teaching how to practice the five aggregates, practice observing the five aggregates. So sankara here is like the five hindrances. Uh, it's our our thoughts and emotions and that sort of thing. Those are sankara. So when you like something or dislike something, you would say liking or disliking. Is it okay to note in, out, instead of rising, falling? So rising, falling isn't really the best word, the best two words to use. It's just stuck, and it's it's okay in English if you're a native English speaker, but what we're focusing on is tension and flaccidity. We're focusing on the air element, the pressure element of, of rupa, of, of matter. So our experience of matter, from an experiential perspective, it's the hardness and softness, it's the heat and the cold, and it's the tension and flaccidity. In this case, we're focusing on tension and flaccidity. So the rising is a tension, is a, a tensing, right? There's a there's an increase in tension. The falling is a release of that tension, and, and those are distinct experiences. Rising somehow captures that tensing, and falling somehow captures the release of tension. In and out if you're in can somehow encapsulate the idea of expansion which is a which is a tensing state like a balloon expanding and the contraction which is a, a release of that tension the the falling then sure but it really doesn't and in and out are used much more for following the breath meditations that follow the breath in and out this isn't what we're doing is not a breath meditation you see it's a body meditation related to the breath but still body the the breath meditation can become conceptual because in and out is a concept you conceive of breath going in and breath going out which isn't really directly related to how you experience it which is a, a cold you feel cool feeling at the nose or a, a heat you know, when the breath goes out and you feel a cool feeling in your throat and and so on and of course the expansion of the lungs and and the tension there so in and out is probably not a good idea for this technique now, if you want to practice samatha, in and out, in and out is, is valid. I've been practicing vipassana, Mahasi Sayadaw method, for five years, but I've not realized nibbana. My purpose is to achieve liberation, so it's disappointing. How should I think about this? Well, it's hard for me to say without knowing your background or, or what you mean by having pra by practicing. I don't know if you've done intensive courses or whatever. Um, 
So you, you, you might want to think about doing some intensive courses. I mean, I, I, all I can say, I suppose, is if you're interested in what we do, you're welcome to sign up for one of our courses. Maybe an intensive course. If you've been doing it for five years already, then an intensive course might make sense. Um, it's hard to say, you know, when you say you're doing that, I don't know, are you doing it correctly? I don't know, maybe you you have gained some special realization and you don't know it, or... Um, I really can't comment on your your situation, but... You have to have a conversation with someone about what are the next steps to go deeper, perhaps. Because what I'm thinking is some people might practice according to, say, something similar to our booklet on how to meditate and do that for five years. And that really isn't all that, doesn't have a lot of depth to it. And to really get benefit, you're going to be required to go deeper, which is why we have our courses. And the booklet is just an introduction on how to start practicing. Is it possible to be in a state of constant mindfulness where the mind never wonders or needs to be brought back to the present moment? Yes, it's. I mean, that's really a part of being of enlightenment. To be mindful by nature. I wish to gain independence, yet this feels hard to achieve through focusing on the practice. Is it wrong for one to put the practice to one side, to establish oneself initially? But you see, if you, I think what you're talking about is establishing yourself in a worldly sense, which is very dependent. You're dependent on things like money, you're dependent on things like status and job security and so on. That's all very dependent of you. Independence has nothing to do with any of those things. Independence is on a on an experiential level, where you aren't dependent on pleasure or pain or fear or worry or anything like that. Where you're not controlled by these things. So you should never put aside your practice, or you'll never become free from those things that control you. You'll never gain true independence. The Buddha said, of course, mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness is what lets you live independently. Anisito jiviharati. A person who is mindful dwells independent. I find it easier to stay meditating, but I procrastinate every day, so I find it harder to define a time that I should start meditating every day. How can one solve that? Well, you might consider doing our at-home course. I don't know if you've done that. Gives you a good... You know, being, being, being accountable to a teacher is quite helpful for keeping a schedule. But there really is no quick answer to your question. Ultimately, you have to find it in you to follow the path. Not everyone is going to, not quickly anyway. Can I also do other meditations along with this practice, like body scan, etc.? Is it a good idea to do guided meditations from YouTube videos, or is it harmful? 
So the first part, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but yeah, more to the point, is it helpful or harmful? Uh, I'd say it's generally considered harmful to do any two different types of meditation together. If you're following one tradition, follow that tradition. So no, I wouldn't recommend doing any other techniques along with this technique. But I would say none of those things are in them in and of themselves harmful. It's just stick to one thing, whatever you're going to do, do that. Now, there are some exceptions where on the side you can practice loving-kindness, you can practice mindfulness of the Buddha. These are sort of side meditations that you can do daily. Some people do chanting every day to recollect about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, that sort of thing. Mindfulness of death. These are just generally useful meditations that are good to recollect daily. But as your main meditation, it should be one technique. Is the only way to weaken the five hindrances to note them? Is there a more powerful technique? Well, there are more direct techniques to to uh, isolate yourself from them, but those techniques are only temporary. Uh, the, the practice of satipatthana vipassana doesn't isolate you from them, but it helps you gain a better perspective on them and on the things that cause them and ultimately work them out by engaging with the process. So it's ultimately more profound, more useful. But if you just want to get rid of the five hindrances temporarily, there are lots of meditations that'll do that better. It's just that they don't actually deal with the underlying problem. When walking to work, I'm very aware of walking in terms of noting. I feel very pleasant, and the five hindrances are absent in me. Is that experiencing first jhana in everyday life? So I don't really answer questions about first jhana or jhana in general because, I mean, it's not, this isn't, I'm glad you brought it up, but just what I'll say is that jhanas are, jhanas are a, a slippery thing. They're defined differently by by everyone, and everyone thinks they know exactly what they mean. When, hmm. I mean, I, my point is, don't take them as actual entities. You should never take anything as an entity. You know, you're in that state, and the way to think of it in Buddhism is, it is what it is. You're in that state, whether you call it first jhana or whatever, isn't isn't really useful i mean there's so many problems with with labeling things like that like this is this i'm in this state i'm in that state no you're in the state you're in it's putting a name on it is generally harmful so when you feel pleasant that's a pleasant feeling and a big part of what i'm saying is that even what we call the jhanas are impermanent suffering and non-self they're not the end goal they're not going to satisfy you they're not under your control. They don't belong to you. It's not you. They don't have a self or an entity. They're just moments of experience. And so from our from the deep Buddhist perspective, we don't see things as more than they actually are. It's a feeling. It comes and it goes. That's all.
It is what it is. What is the Buddhist view on embarrassment, and how do you deal with it? It's a mind state. It's a sankhara, for that person who was asking about sankharas earlier. And we would say to ourselves, embarrassed, embarrassed. Not out loud, but just in our minds. That's our technique. It's our means of straightening out our minds in relation to our experiences. So if you haven't read our booklet, maybe read that. It might give you some idea of how to deal with such things. Have you got any advice for people with agoraphobia, the fear of being in a situation where help might not be possible, or health anxiety? Well, it's fear and anxiety. See, again, try and focus more on the actual experience than the label. When you say, I have agoraphobia, or I'm an agoraphobic, right, or I'm anxious, I have an anxiety problem, an anxiety disorder, for example. People think this is helpful, and I've heard people argue that it's helpful to have a name, you know, to, to not be lost wondering what's wrong with you. To have a name kind of is a relief. It's not really helpful from a Buddhist perspective. It's much more helpful. You don't need a name for it. What you need is a tool to deal with it, to relate to it. So when you have fear, that's what you're experiencing. When you have agoraphobia, all you have is fear. All you have is fear and the things that are causing the fear. And so separating those two out and, and acknowledging and noting them individually is the solution. Anxiety as well. Noting the anxiety, noting the cause of the anxiety, also noting the result of the fear and anxiety what it does to your body, what it does to your heart rate and your stomach and your shoulders and so on, your headache and the headache that it can cause. Noting all of that. I think you've just answered this, Bhante, but what is the best method for addressing fear when it comes up during meditation? Yeah, fear is a really good one because some people live with great fear and what I mean by a really good one, fear and anxiety are actually pretty quick. It's it's pretty remarkable and, and empowering to realize how beneficial meditation is in dealing with them. Now, it's not going to cure you of the, these habits. No habit is easy to cure. There's no quick fix for any of them. But just to see how empowering it is to actually have some some solution, right? Because fear is related to helplessness, anxiety as well. When you're empowered through, through having actually something to do and some way of relating to it that doesn't leave you helpless, right? that doesn't leave you powerless, doesn't leave you at the mercy of your emotions, it, it really changes everything. So read our booklet if you haven't. How can we deal with insomnia? What does Lord Buddha say in regards to sleep? What does the Buddha say in regards to sleep? Sleep little. Sleep very little. Three or four hours, that's what the Buddha would say. I mean, that's hardcore practice. Four hours is really the optimum. But you, your mind needs to be in an optimum state in order to make that healthy. But when you're in that state, four hours just feels perfect. And then there are people who go without sleep entirely. Do it for days or, or even weeks on end. Months, apparently. Um, but what I will say about insomnia, 
and it relates to what I just said, is that insomnia involves the desire to sleep. And it involves that in two ways. It involves that because that's what we consider to be the problem. Um, you know, we want to sleep and we can't sleep, so the problem is not being able to sleep. But the actual problem is that we want to sleep, and wanting to sleep creates disappointment when you're not asleep, right? It creates activity in the mind, it creates stress, and stress, of course, prevents you from sleeping. So the more you want to sleep, the harder it is to fall asleep. And so you have to change your perception. You have to be okay with not sleeping. And, and you have to because it's unhealthy not to. Of course, insomnia is unhealthy because you're stressed and stress is harmful, debilitating even. If, on the other hand, you change your perception and you become okay with not sleeping, it changes your... you, you become resigned even to the fact that you're not going to get to sleep. You, you don't have to think that it's a good thing not to sleep. That's not the point. But you have to lose the perception that something's wrong right? when, when something's wrong you're never going to fall asleep so mindfulness really helps with insomnia but you have to re you have to actually practice it you can't just want to practice it or think you're practicing it you have to lie there and practice it and really you know, replace your sleep intention with your mindfulness intention and say i'm going to try to be as mindful as i can and the view should be, even if I don't sleep at all tonight. And that might happen. But it becomes so much easier to fall asleep when you need to sleep, if you do this. You'll find that when you've made this change, sleep eventually comes very very easy, very easily. You know, we, we try to practice in such a way as to n not sleep. That's a very common and important Buddhist practice in in a you know in a meditative context in a meditation session a meditation course you lie down and you try to be as mindful as you can until you just fall asleep unintentionally that's how you practice when noting i feel myself looking at my own hindrances which feels stressful but by bringing up wholesome thoughts, additional to noting, I enter high concentration way faster. Should I go on like that? No, we're not trying to enter high concentration. See, what you're doing there is an avoidance technique. You're trying to avoid the feeling stress. Stress, right? Mindfulness is literally about facing your experiences. So what you're experiencing when you look at the hindrances and note them is is the result of facing. You know, it's a change. And of course the immediate reaction is to run, try and run away, to try and fix. Mindfulness is about changing your attitude. So instead of trying to fix things, you're simply trying to see them as they are. That's a very important shift that has to occur. And in order for that shift to occur, you have to face things without trying to change them. So that's important. You're intentionally bringing something up to avoid the situation is potentially problematic because it's a habit of avoidance.
Dante, we're coming to the close of the hour, and all the Tier Great. 1 questions are finished. Well, thank you all. Good session. Sadhu. Sadhu. Oh, at, um, at 6 o'clock tonight, if anyone's interested, there's this international panel. And two hours from now, it's an international panel of monks, male and female monks, on uh, the Mangala Sutta, the Sutta of Blessings. So we did part of it already. We'll be looking at most of the rest of it. Uh, you're welcome to find that on... Uh, you'll have to find it on me on my Facebook page. I posted a link, so you can find it on Facebook. Have a good week, everyone.